0: I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, and we will be reading from verse 13 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 31. As we continue with the account of Peter and John after healing the man who has been lame since birth, we see in this particular passage that they have already given a response to the Sanhedrin, who is the ruling body of the Jews, a very powerful response, indicting them of crucifying the Messiah. And this is what happens subsequent to that response as Peter, John, and the layman. Had been brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The scriptures read Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen And heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than forty years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage, the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's bow together in a prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, once again we come. We ask that you would cleanse our hearts and cleanse our hands of sin and that you would open our eyes that we might see and understand great things from your word. Grant to us encouragement as we desire to do the same, to be like these, to speak boldly your word in the midst of opposition. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Many of you are familiar with the name of John Patton. John Patton was born in Scotland in 1824. He was a missionary who sailed to the New Hebrides at the age of 33 with his wife, Mary. And they had reached their appointed island of Tana, and New Hebrides, by the way, is uh, not far from Australia, somewhat southeast of Papua New Guinea. He and his wife reached that island November 5th. And in March of the following year, both he, his wife and his newborn son died of a fever. He served alone on that island for the next four years, John Patton did, under incredible circumstances and in constant danger, as the natives were very prone to violence, and as they often ate the bodies of those that they killed. He was there for four years until he was driven off the island in 1862, but this was part of what he wrote related to the danger that he faced, quote, our continuous danger caused me now oftentimes to sleep with my clothes on, that I might start at a moment's warning. My faithful dog, Clutha, would give a sharp bark and awake me, God made them fear this precious creature and often used her in saving our lives, unquote. One of the remarkable things about his life and dealing with the danger that he faced was that he was a very forthright and gutsy individual. He often rebuked them and scolded them for their bad behavior. One incident he writes about Quote, one morning at daybreak, I found my house surrounded by armed men, and a chief intimated that they had assembled to take my life. Seeing that I was entirely in their hands, I knelt down and gave myself away, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus for what seemed the last time on earth. Rising, I went out to them and began calmly talking about their unkind treatment of me and contrasting it with my conduct towards them. At last, some of the chiefs who had attended the worship rose and said, quote, Our conduct has been bad, but now we will fight for you and kill all those who hate you. Unquote. Another time, when the natives in large numbers were gathered, At his house, there was a man who rushed him with an axe in his hand. But he writes, A Karasumini chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how an attack might be made. And yet, with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. His courage increased and his deliverances were multiplied and he would make it his aim to keep warring factions as the tribes would often fight one another. He would throw himself in between them and he would argue for peace. Saying, quote, going amongst them every day I did my utmost to stop hostilities, setting the evils of war before them, and pleading with their leading men to renounce it. That kind of courage, the kind of courage for the sake of the Lord is very difficult to find these days. The courage not only is that which involves risk of one's own life, but the courage to suffer loss even at the death of his own wife and child, and yet to stay on in the mission field among a people whom many might look at as undeserving of the gospel. But by God's grace and because of his grace, he stayed on, living on the edge of danger every day, threatened with death repeatedly. Yet that is not unheard of in the early church as well. Their courage is outlined in the book of Acts and as we will see coming through the book of Acts is characteristic of the boldness of the apostles and those who would stand for their faith even under persecution as we talked about last week in the book of 1 Peter. And so we pick up the passage where we left off two weeks ago in relationship to Peter and John. Who are standing in the middle of the Sanhedrin, a group of 71 leaders of the Jewish community, the highest ruling body of the Jews, Peter and John, along with the lame man, being hauled, being questioned here in a very intimidating context. They are questioned in the very circle or semicircle, I should say, in which Jesus was brought not long before that. And yet Peter responds with great boldness in his preaching of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And they were dragged in front of the Sanhedrin because he was bringing the same message to the people. The second sermon that he had preached, many believed. the scriptures tell us, and under that preaching of the message of salvation, there were 5,000 men who God had Added to the church, and when you add in women and children, there were probably upwards of 15 to 20,000 people. And it is because of this great, great number of individuals who had come and believed and followed the message that the apostles brought that the Sanhedrin, in feeling the threat that they brought in pronouncing Jesus as the resurrected Messiah hauled them in front of this court, by which Peter with great boldness says in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is with that boldness of Peter, in spite of the threats against him, that they say in verse 13, verse 13, they observed his confidence He and John's confidence, and they understood these uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Peter's apt and eloquent defense of the Old Testament scriptures, his declaration of the resurrected Messiah, the exclusivity of salvation only through Christ alone, there was a stunned amazement from the Sanhedrin. Completely unexpected Uneducated, untrained men. They didn't have formal rabbinic training. These were Galileans. Galileans from way up north, known to be somewhat simpletons in their eyes. Galileans not known to be the primest or proper or law-abiding folks to begin with. That was their reputation. And here, they shocked the leaders of the Jews. They astonished them. Not only the leaders of the Jews, this wasn't the first time. After the Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2 and they spoke in tongues, the people who heard them, they were all amazed and astonished saying, verse 7 of chapter 2, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans weren't known to be those who were trained, educated. These folks, they recognized them as untrained, not having training, and yet they recognized them having been with Jesus. Not only were they stunned because of these uneducated men were giving an eloquent defense, but verse 14 tells us, that seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had no reply. The powerful testimony of the miracle of this well-known lame man who had been laying by the gate called Beautiful, Likely, day after day, as people brought him for years and decades, he would have been begging, and he would have been very well known among the people. Right beside him, they had nothing to say. The power of God was on display. The power of God, through these apostles. After all, it was Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night, and in John 3, there was a man, he was a Pharisee of the Jews, and he said to Jesus on that night, he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here was a Pharisee who was probably sitting among them, Nicodemus, knowing that these miraculous signs accompanied those who were from God. Hmm. Brought them to speechlessness. So what did they do? They ordered them to leave the council. Verse 15, they conferred with one another. And what did they do? What shall we do? They had a quandary on their hands for a fact that a noteworthy miracle had taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Here, they were in a real bind. They were in a very real bind. They were reliving their nightmare all over again. You see, they had put Jesus to death, and they had told people he was being put to death as a person who blasphemed God. And then they tried to cover it up once again when the Roman soldiers came to them and said, the tomb is empty. And they said, well, here, take this money. Tell people that the disciples stole the body from the empty tomb. And now these apostles had done a noteworthy miracle by the name and the power of Christ and preaching him as the resurrected Messiah that God had raised him from the dead. And it was his power by this well-known lame man that stood here healed him. So in their huddle, they had no no opportunity even to fabricate a lie against these apostles where the powerful testimony was too, too strong. And Peter and John had become instant celebrities among the people. Everyone wanted to see this lame man. That's why in Solomon's colonnade, they all came and listened for hours from 3 o'clock on until it was sundown that prior day listening to them tell about who Jesus was and that there was no other name by which they must be saved. And the text tells us that some of them believed the message of salvation and they came to Christ by the powerful preaching of the apostles. One thing they didn't do was they didn't produce the body of Jesus nor show that he was dead, that wasn't even a consideration in their discussions. Why? I mean, all they had to do was, if this was some type of false movement, produce the body of Jesus and this little fledgling church will be stopped in its tracks. Those who deny Christ today must account for the missing body, must account for the reaction of the Jewish leaders. But the truth of the matter was is that Jesus had risen from the dead and these apostles were speaking that which was truth. And so they commanded them not to teach any more in the name of Jesus. Verse 17, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? Interesting. They commanded them to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. One might think that these leaders, knowing that they had unjustly tried Jesus, haul him before their own court at night, by which their own law forbid the, the trial being at night and drumming up some false witnesses, having missing a dead body, having bribed the Roman soldiers, and now a notable miracle stands before them, might have thought twice to think that perhaps we were wrong. Perhaps we were wrong. But no, they don't think anything of that sort. Their pride of their heart, the blindness of their own soul, blinded them to what was true, what was right the reality is that sometimes we can be too. We can be too. Our own sin can blind us to that which might be false, whether it's life patterns or ways that we think, or when something is biblical or not biblical, and we may be too proud to admit that we're wrong. We may be unwilling to look for truth. Those who don't know the Lord, it is not a lack of evidence. Many times it is that they simply do not want to believe in the evidence that is right in front of them. In the article entitled Unreasonable Doubt, Jim Spiegel quotes two contemporary philosophers who have resisted belief in God for personal and not just intellectual reasons. Thomas Nagel, was an atheist who authored a popular introduction to philosophy titled What Does It All Mean?, he wrote, quote, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that, unquote. Or the presupposition of a 20th century ethic. Ethics philosopher Mortimer Adler, who was later baptized at the age of 81, confessed to rejecting religious commitment for most of his life because, quote, it would require a radical change in my way of life, a basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day choices, as well as in the ultimate objectives to be sought or hoped for. The simple truth of the matter is that I do not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. Unquote. The evidence is before them. Yet, their stubborn rejection of God blinds one because of sin, just like these religious leaders. We may be, able, we may be tempted to think about our friends and our loved ones saying, well, if only somebody showed them Somebody showed them evidence for God they would believe or somebody explained to them or somebody answered all of their questions. It's not a matter of whether or not they have enough evidence. Romans 1 tells us, Romans chapter 1 tells us that very clearly in chapter 1, verse 18 through 22, a very well-known passage to many of you. Romans 1, 18, the text tells us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. So there's a testimony of God within them. For God made it evident to them, Not only did God make it evident within them, but God displayed His character, His attributes in that which is created so that no one has an excuse, verse 20. But they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, verse 18. The stubborn rejection of God, deleting even the possibility of God from one's worldview. That is what sinners do. In a 2013 article, The New Yorker, about faith and belief, Adam Gopnik made the following confidence statement quote unquote, We know, he writes, that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intervention with the laws of nature, unquote. And in the same article, he concluded We need not imagine there's no heaven, we know there is none. And we will search for angels in vain, unquote. Strikingly similar to what Carl Sagan would say, the late Carl Sagan, that the cosmos is all there is and ever will be, unquote. But such statements come from people who suppress, as the scriptures say, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because when you look at all that God has created and all that God has done, you cannot Help but come to a conclusion that there is a creator, that there is God who is behind all of these things. In the face of evidence, people will suppress the truth in unrighteousness, just as the Sanhedrin did in the face of a notable miracle. Knowing that no one does miracles like this unless they are from God, knowing that the result of this was that all of these people were praising and giving glory to God, they still rejected the message of the apostles, which was that Jesus, there is no other name under heaven by which one must be saved. It doesn't matter how much evidence you might produce. You cannot ever argue someone into salvation. Number two, however, we see the response of the apostles at their threat. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have heard. Now, clearly the Bible tells us, as we looked at last week, that we're to submit to our governing authorities. 1 Peter chapter 2, it tells us that submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We're all under some level of authority, from the family, parents, and children, to your employer, to whatever school you go to, to the government, etc. We are all under authority. We're called to submission. Romans 13, verse 2 says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So we're to submit to authority and we're not to resist the authority that God has ordained. However, there is a limit. There is a limit to that submission. And the limit is not based on whether you or I personally like it or whether the monetary cost of the consequences are too high or whether or not we agree in our own mind's eye, nor whether or not we think it's reasonable. The limit that that submission is to come to is when that governing authority commands or instructs us to do that which is contrary to the objective word of God. When it is contrary to the word of God, when our employers or our teachers or our government ask us to commit sin, Before God, by disobeying His Word, then we must obey God. We must obey God rather than human authority. And the standard is the objective Word of God. It is this book. It is not some sort of subjective feeling. Many people will lean on on their own thoughts by saying, well, God told me to do this, or God called me to do this. I've had people sit down with me and they'll say, well, who am I to say that God hasn't called them to do this? And it's completely against what the Word of God says, as if their subjective heart is somehow authoritative over the objective Word of God. It is what the Word of God says that is our authority. And when we are called by the government or by some other authority, that we are to disobey, well, we are to obey God. It is not by what God has called you to do. Can you imagine if your child said to one, you one day, well, you know what, I don't think God calling me not to do my homework today. And You would think that's ridiculous. You would probably say, well, I really don't care because the Bible says children obey your parents and today you're going to do math whether you like it or not. Yet I've heard adults use that phrase so so indiscriminately as if it is something that allows them a free ticket to disobey the clear, objective word of God. And this has clear and very practical implications for people. In the workplace, there may be strong pressure to conform to business practices that are unethical. In the workplace, there may be strong pressure to communicate things that are not truthful, that are unscrupulous, or just plain wrong without integrity. And do you know what helps? I I suggest if it really will just help, just let people know right off the bat that you're a Christian at work. Put a cross in your cubicle or put up a sign or some sort of plaque that says, I'm a Christian. And don't, then you won't be surprised When They won't be surprised when they ask you to do something and say, no, I can't do that because I'm a Christian. It's what I would do often in job interviews for secular jobs ever since I was in college. You know, I'd tell them, well, I'm a Christian or I'm a seminary student or I'm a pastor. And they wouldn't ask me. If I didn't get the job, well, that wouldn't be a job I would want in the first place. So nothing to worry about. You save yourself the headache by letting people know that you are a Christian Now, isn't it interesting what Peter and John say? They say, for we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. They were compelled to speak because of the reality of their faith. John Chrysostom, who was a very powerful preacher in church history, a preacher whose name Chrysostom means golden mouth. He was summoned before the Roman emperor. Roman Emperor named Arcadius, who threatened him with banishment if he didn't stop preaching Christ, and this is what he said. He said, you cannot banish me for the world is my father's house. The emperor said, well, then I will slay you. Nay, he said, you cannot slay me for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then your treasures will be confiscated. He said, that can't be. My treasures are all in heaven and no one can break in and steal. And the emperor said, well, then I will drive you from men, and you will have no friends. And he said, you cannot do that either. I have a friend in heaven who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the emperor banished him to a remote place on the edge of Armenia. And all he did when he got there was preach all the time. And so they determined they had to banish him farther into a terribly obscure place and as history was recorded, he died on the journey. But nothing could stop him from proclaiming Christ as Lord, the resurrected Savior, under which all must come by faith and repentance to him to be saved. But today, many Christians, they're just the opposite. They're just the opposite. They would never be able to say, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard to many Christians it's very, very rare that they ever speak of the Savior or share the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some, they may feel ashamed, and this is what the Scriptures say in Luke nine twenty-six: For whoever is ashamed of me, the Lord Jesus says, and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And the model that Peter and John model for us here is that of courage, of boldness in the face of opposition, unashamed to speak of Jesus, unashamed to tell people that they are followers of Christ, the resurrected Savior, unashamed to say that Jesus is the one and only way by which you must be saved. There is no other way. So we see here in this text, The rejection of the Jews in the face of overwhelming evidence that you cannot convince somebody, even with the insurmountable evidence that you might have, to come to the Savior. But we see in the face of threats, the boldness of the apostles as they preach the word of God, the name of Christ. And lastly, we see when they are released, the believers gather together in a prayer for courage. Verse 23... When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, I'm sure this is just like people who might go to court or something like that. Everyone wants to know what happened, who said what, what did the judge say, what was the sentence, what was the verdict, or whatever it may be. They wanted a full report, and they gave them a full report. And after the report, with one accord, the text says, they prayed. That's one result of persecution. People gather and they pray and ask of God because this is far out of their control. Gathering of believers together and the prayer that is said here models for us the things they recognized, three things they recognized and one thing that they asked for. They prayed prayed these things. They recognized the person of God as a sovereign creator. They recognized the person of God as a sovereign creator in their prayer. Number two They recognized that God had enemies. Number three, they recognized this was a part of God's predestined plan. And fourthly, they asked for boldness. They prayed for boldness. Their prayer begins with the recognition that God was a sovereign creator. Verse 24, and when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The word here for Lord is the word despotis, which, from which we get uh, the, a despot. And it is used of God in various contexts, but here meaning absolute master or sovereign Lord. The first and foremost thought in their prayer was to recognize that God is the most high God, the one who is sovereign over all things and has the absolute right to do as He wishes to do whatever he so chooses to do. So there is no reason to be upset or to complain against God or to have hard feelings as if this is something that is strange and that they are undeserving. No, it is a recognition that God is sovereign And has absolute right to do as he wishes because he is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who everything has come to pass because of him. And the very fact that God is the creator gives him that right. The basis of that which is his right is the fact that he made everything. It is good. It is good whenever we come to God in prayer to think of the greatness of God. It is good, as these believers did, to think great thoughts of who God is, because oftentimes our prayers are so small and shallow because we fail to recognize the greatness of the God that we call upon. Our God is often small, so our prayers are often small. If we think great thoughts of God, then there is no fear to ask of God. Great things for His glory. Secondly, they recognized that God had enemies. God has enemies. They quoted Psalm 2, and they recognized that being a follower of Christ is not going to be a walk in the park. Once you become a Christian, all is not going to be rosy. Once you become a Christian, it's not as if you're going to have lots of friends all over the world. You will have friends within the body of Christ, but... You will also have enemies, those who hate Christ, and the, and, the, and the quotation here is in Psalm chapter 2 that is quoted here, and it's a, it's a prophecy that is fully realized in Revelation 17, fully realized in Revelation 19, when the nations gather to fight against Christ. And this is sort of a preview recognizing that persecution comes to those who follow Christ. That is what the church has been promised. That is what you have been promised. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes, and we talked about persecution last week, he writes in verse 12 of chapter 4, 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that to the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. You know, persecution is both a promise and a privilege. It is a promise and a privilege. It's a promise in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted become a Christian, and you live out your faith, and you live out your faith in such a way that others see, if you're faithful in that, you will face persecution. You're not promised an easy life. God has never promised us a life without trials or suffering. No. You're promised here persecution. Now, you may not be killed for your faith, But you will suffer if you're living a godly life before others, and others know that you're a Christian to some degree or another. Maybe that might be small. Maybe it might be huge. But whatever it is, it's secondly a privilege. As we looked at last week, Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His name's sake to suffer for his name's sake. One missionary friend wrote to me just last week about this verse saying, we have nothing else that we can do but to continue to following his path, even if that path leads to persecution. Translation, it is a gift, unquote. Persecution is a gift that has been granted to us. It is, as Peter says, it is, comes upon you for your testing, and we're to rejoice. It's not only a gift because we deepen, as I mentioned last week, our appreciation for all that Christ has gone through, all that Christ has done for us. It is a gift in that it proves, number one, the genuineness of our salvation. It helps us oh, to understand what Christ has given to us, and it brings about purification in our lives. Those that die, you see, as martyrs for Christ have great reward great reward. And I believe one of the greatest rewards in heaven will go to those who have died for the sake of the ministry of Christ, of proclaiming Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus has taken back the title deed to the earth. You recall after there is a series of Letters to the churches. Then there is a scroll that is offered out, and Jesus takes that scroll, the title deed to the earth, and he unrolls that scroll, and each time he unrolls it, he breaks a seal, and in that seal, there is a judgment that is rendered. And by the seven seals that will be there, and in Revelation chapter 6, the next chapter over, he has broken the seal, seal number five, I believe. On that account, it says, "...when the Lamb broke the fifth seal." I saw underneath the altar, there's an altar, with souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There was given to each one of them a white robe. They were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. There are those souls who cry out for God's justice. Christ tells them to wait a little while longer because there are still more who will die for the name of Christ for the sake of our Savior. And there is great reward for them who are martyred for the name of Christ. But thirdly, the new Christian recognizes the person of God, the enemies of God. But thirdly, these believers here recognize that God had a predestined plan. Acts four, twenty-seven. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Same thing that Peter preached. Peter preached in Acts 2.23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, he indicts the people, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The betrayal and the crucifixion of Jesus was all by God's predetermined plan, and the Jews, Herod, and the Gentiles were all culpable. They were all guilty. The greatest injustice that ever occurred was by God's sovereign, predetermined plan. And if that travesty of justice was all orchestrated by God, what can we say then about any time we face injustice or a travesty of justice, when we are unfairly treated, that too is a part of God's plan. Persecution is unjust by definition. Persecution will be unfair. Persecution will cause us to suffer that which is wrong, and when it comes, we can recognize that this is all a part of God's plan, granted to us for our testing, as Peter writes in his epistle. Whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And these believers submitted themselves to the plan of God. They submitted themselves to the plan of God, the person of God, knowing that God has enemies. And they didn't pray for escape. They didn't pray for escape. They prayed for boldness, verse 29. Take note of their threats and grant your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They didn't ask for relief. They didn't decide to move out of town. They didn't cower in fear. They prayed for confidence that God would help them in the face of these threats that had been brought by the ruling party. The Supreme Court of the Jews had commanded them no longer to speak in the name of Jesus, and yet they prayed that God would empower them to be bold for their faith. And God answered that prayer. God answered that prayer very quickly. Verse 31, they began to speak the word of God with boldness. God grants that prayer, courage, boldness, when their focus was on Christ rather than on fearing people. The question for us is, would we be just as bold? Would we be just as bold to suffer for the Lord if it were threats from the governing authorities, not to speak of Christ? Would we be able to say we cannot help but speak, or would we cower in fear? John Patton would go and he would visit his enemies when they were sick. The enemies who wanted to kill him, never knowing what would happen, never knowing if there would be an ambush. There was a native named Ian. As he leaned over his sick bed, Patton did Ian pulled a dagger and he held it to his heart. And Patton writes, I durst never neither move nor speak except that my heart kept praying to the Lord to spare me or if my time had come to take me home to glory with himself. There passed a few moments of awful suspense. My sight went and came. Not a word was spoken except to Jesus. And then Ian wheeled his knife around, thrust it into a sugarcane leaf, and he cried, Go! Go quickly! And I ran for my life, weary four miles, until I reached the mission house, faint, yet praising God for such a deliverance. You know, because of his work, after he left, he married again, he had a son, and his son, and he ministered once again to come back to that island, and when he left again, later on, he said, quote, I don't know of one native on these islands who has not made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, unquote. For God had worked powerfully through the preaching of the word that people would come to the Savior. The question for us is how would we fare if we were threatened by the governing authorities no longer to speak in the name of Christ? How would we fare if our teachers, our professors, or our supervisors would say, no, don't ever say the name of Christ. Don't ever say that name. At the age of 26, Ken Langza, he joined the faculty of the University of Virginia. He was a young professor and a tenured colleague warned him not to be explicit about his faith and his career. And he was stunned one day when he saw his based on a flyer, he was a new Christian, and it was on a campus location, and the campus ministry had posted it because he was going to speak there. And he was relatively, as I mentioned, a new believer, and he was quite afraid. What would his professors think of him? Would this hurt his tenure chances? This was a secular university, after all. And he had a very difficult time. He went out at night secretly and took that poster down. The next morning, however, God convicted his soul and he put the poster back up after hours of searching his soul and he concluded that his life was not about career ambition, but about faithful discipleship, and that being private about his faith was not an option. Well, he's been there for 40 years He's been named Professor of the Year multiple times, and he's still a speaker in high demand. He will be the first to say that serving only one master is liberating, because pleasing an audience of one makes us less anxious, makes us less sensitive to criticism, and makes us more courageous. And we become more secure, and we compete less for the honor that belongs to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the example that has been set before us. The example of those who will be bold in the face of threats and opposition, knowing that persecution will come, or perhaps even in our workplace or among students, among our friends to speak the name of Jesus. God is intimidating. But I pray, Father, for courage, that we would be bold about our faith, That others around our workplace would know that we are children of God, that we are unashamed to wear upon our heart the cross of Christ. And as you grant to us opportunities that we would speak with great courage, knowing, O God, that some are simply waiting to hear the good news and the hope that they so desperately need. In Jesus' name. Amen.